As I was thinking about our time this morning, I was drawn to two common realities in the life of a believer, the experience of trials and the challenge of a disciplined prayer life. The experience of trials and the challenge of a disciplined prayer life. If we were to go around the room again, perhaps, and ask these two questions. Did you experience trials in 2021, and did you struggle to pray? I think we would all agree that the likely response to both questions would be affirmative. We experience trials and we struggle to pray as a common thread in our Christian lives. It's no wonder Jesus said to his disciples, in this world you have trouble, in the present tense. And James tells us we experience trials of various kinds. The disciples also had to ask Jesus how to pray, because prayer is a discipline to be acquired. In fact, Paul tells us, does he not, that sometimes we do not know how to pray. And of course, we don't know what's ahead of us in 2022, but we can expect that we will likely face hardships and that prayer will remain a difficult discipline that requires effort, especially in the midst of our trials. So I want you to please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Our focus is going to be on verses 73 through 80. Both of these aspects of the Christian life feature in this stanza, and I think we have much to learn from the psalmist. Psalm 119 is an acrostic psalm of highest note. There are 22 stanzas in the psalm, and each stanza is headed by the Hebrew alphabet. And the alphabet that heads up each stanza essentially begins every sentence within that stanza. So it is a poetry of the richest kind. It's a beautiful tapestry celebrating the breadth and the depth of the Word of God. And the psalmist affirms this in verse 96 of this chapter. He says that your commandment is exceedingly broad. In fact, the only Hebrew alphabet repeated in the New Testament is the Yod letter, which is the heading for our stanza today. And Jesus says in Matthew 5.18, Until heaven and earth pass away, not the Yod or tittle shall pass away until all is accomplished. He was defending the eternality of the Word of God. And the psalmist said this in verse 89, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. But in celebrating these rich truths about the Word of God, the psalmist does not shy away about his own experiences in this sin-cursed world. To set the context, the psalmist is going through severe adversity and significant trials. He introduced this subject of trials in verse 23. He says there in verse 23, Princes sit and talk against me. And this subject runs right through to the very end. Look at verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause. The highest officials in the land. 
At one point, they're merely talking against him. By the time he finishes, he says, they are oppressing me without a reason. But what does he tend to during such times of testing? He tends to God in prayer. God is his only source of help, not the arm of the flesh. So we would be wise, I think, to learn from the psalmist how to pray in the midst of afflictions, what to pray for when adversity strikes, and what ought to be our meditation when we are overwhelmed with sorrow. Now notice in his prayer the centrality of the Word of God. Look at all the synonyms for Scripture that feature in this stanza. Verse 73, your commandments. 74 and 76, your word. 75, your judgments. 77, your law. 78, your precepts. 79, your testimonies. 80, your statutes. His trials have drawn him to the word of God, not away from it. In fact, out of the 176 verses he writes here, only a few exceptions where he doesn't mention the word of God or a synonym to that degree. But before we look at, we look at our outline, let's look at what he says in the first part of verse 73. He says there, your hands made me and fashioned me. We did not exist by some cosmic chance or evolutionary process. We did not mutate from animals. We were made by Yahweh's hands. So he's affirming that primarily we are God's product and secondarily our parents' product. Essentially, the psalmist is saying, you and you alone have made me. And we know this, Psalm 100 verse 3, know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. One of my kids' favorite songs, God made me, God made me. In my Bible book, it says that God made me. It all starts there. Now the verb to fashion that we've read, it literally means to establish to set up, to fix in place. So he's saying, not only did you make me, you have placed me right where I am at this very moment. My circumstances, my difficulties, my trials, my joys, my prosperity, it all comes from you. The spouse I have, the children I have, the abilities I have, the job I do, the income I earn. The limitations, the weaknesses, the pressures, the challenges, all of it has been set in place by you. Essentially, the psalmist is saying, you are the potter, I am a clay. You are the creator, I am a creature. You are the master, I am a slave. And of course, as believers, it's not only that he made us, right, but that he what? That he redeemed us. Paul tells us, you have been bought with a prize, therefore glorify God in your body. So we are doubly his, if you will. We are his by creation, and we are his by redemption. So we owe our allegiance to him. We are his subjects. And these truths need to ring in our minds when the going gets tough. So let's look at our outline briefly. How do you pray 
when in the lion's den? How do you pray when the oceans rise and thunders roar? How do you pray when darkness veils your steps? Well, as a creature made by God and a saint redeemed by him, this is how you pray. You pray for a sound understanding. Pray for a sound understanding. That's verse 73. He says that, give me understanding that I may learn your commandments or commandments, depending which fear you're from. <laughs> now, notice the imperative, give me understanding. It's not that he's commanding God. No one gets to command God, right? It's a desperate plea. It's an entreaty, begging and pleading with Yahweh in prayer to give him insight and discernment. And I think the understanding he requires is in context of what he's just said. Comprehension to be acutely aware and deeply conscious that I am yours. I belong to you. You are the sovereign. You are the orchestrator of all of my life affairs. And it's easy in our trials to think and live like practical atheists, is it not? And the result for his quest, he says in verse 73, that I may learn your commandments. The verb to learn is a discipleship term. It's to be in school, intensely engaged in the act of learning. Not only the principles, but, but the effect of those principles. It involves ordering one's life according to what one learns. It's amazing that even in the midst of his trials, learning Yahweh's instructions, the marching orders from the sovereign God, Who made him? It remains priority number one for the psalmist. How about you? What is your first and chiefest concern in the midst of your trials? Is it, Lord, get me out of this? Stop it. This is painful. I cannot bear it. Or is it, as the psalmist says, Lord, I want to understand who you are. I want to understand what you are like. So pray for a sound understanding that comprehends that Yahweh is God and that you are not. He gives the manual as the creator. And you order your steps according to his guidance as his redeemed product. Pray for a sound understanding. Second, pray to be a blessing. Verse 74. This goes against the grain. Generally, when we are in the valley of deepest darkness, our inclination is anything but to concern ourselves with being a blessing to those around us. In fact, we want them to preoccupy themselves with us. We want pity, help, comfort. We want them to to pray for us, to bless us, and to care for us. And none of those things are wrong, but look at what the psalmist says in verse 74. May those who fear you see me and be glad. Those who fear you, the congregation of believers... May they see me and be glad. Now the verb to see here is in the imperfect, and it communicates that this seeing might be ongoing. And similarly, the verb to be glad is also in the imperfect. It speaks of becoming glad. So he's saying this, For as long as the trial continues, may those who continually observe me May they become glad because of the way I am responding to my persistent afflictions. May believers rejoice and be merry at the sight of me. I don't want them to feel sorry for me. I want them to experience exceeding joy. 
What is the trigger to this gladness? He says there in the second part of verse 74, because I wait for your word. Some of the sweetest times in body life when a believer is heavily afflicted is when that believer, instead of becoming sour and bitter, is when that believer becomes sweeter and better because they are holding on to the promises of the word of God. A church rejoices when they see that because they see the testimony of the Lord's work in the life of that believer. And remember how the Apostle Paul began his letter to those in Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And he says this, Who comforts us in all of our affliction. Why? So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So afflictions don't merely belong to us. We must seek to witness to others in the midst of our afflictions by holding on to the testimony of the Word of God during our adversity. So you pray to be a good witness. Third, pray to be submissive. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous. I know, meaning I'm convinced. I have an intimate comprehension of this. And he invokes the covenant name of God that your judgments are righteous. I do not doubt this. This is true. Now, judgments speak of Yahweh's revealed decisions. And righteous here literally means righteousness. So in the midst of his trials, the psalmist justifies God. He sees his trials as the very demonstration of the righteousness of God. He looks at God and declares that God is just in all his dealings with him. He does not see trials as some sort of an injustice on God's part. Your judgments are righteousness. And the world sometimes, they look at afflicted believers going through difficulties, and what do they conclude? God is unjust. God is unrighteous. God is not good. But the believer concludes the opposite. God is righteous. His judgments are righteousness, even in the midst of my afflictions. But he goes on further in verse 75, and he says this, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Faithfulness, that's the character of God, and he speaks of his steadfastness and his trustworthiness. And the verb he uses there to afflict, it carries a strong nuance, and it means to oppress, to humiliate, to do violence to Simply saying, Yahweh humbled me extremely. He drove the sword through me. Even though his affliction may be brought about by wicked men, as he would tell us there in verse 74, is the arrogant. He knows and he acknowledges that ultimately affliction comes from God. Arrogant men cannot bring more or less affliction than what Yahweh has appointed. That's how Joseph concludes, right? What you meant for evil, God meant for for good. God was involved in this. This did not bypass the courtroom of heaven. God himself drove my circumstances. God himself drove the sword through me. In verse 67, rather, the previous stanza, he said this, 
Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71, he says this also, the previous stanza, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Affliction does a lot of good. So pray to be submissive to a sovereign decision to afflict you. And fourth, pray for comfort and protection. We're going to group these two verses, verse 76 and 77. Pray for comfort and protection. He says that, oh, may your loving kindness comfort me. Loving kindness. This is the strongest kind of love. It's unlike the Hollywood type of love, which is hot today and and tomorrow it's cold, which ebbs and flows. This speaks primarily of God's covenant love. It's his loyal love to keep his vows, to to protect and, and comfort his children. It's not emotionally driven. It's covenant driven. Look at the first part of verse 77. May your compassion come to me that I may live. Compassion is the softer kind of love. It's the emotional side, if you will. It carries the idea of consoling, expressing sympathy, that I may live. So protect my life. His adversities are driving him to that point. So loving kindness here carries a strong nuance almost of the father's love and compassion is the mother's love and God has both in him. He wants God to be present and near in his afflictions, to comfort him, to protect him. And remember the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Another way to say that is, if God is for us, it doesn't matter who is against us. The believer looks to God for comfort. The same God who afflicted him. The believer receives comfort from the very same hand. Job says this, Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, I will yet hope in him. The same God who slays me is the same God I tend to for comfort. Now look at the second part of verse 76. According to your word to your servant. How does God channel his comfort to the believer? Through the word, full of his promises. The less you know of the word of God, Friend, the more you rob yourself of comfort during trials. Only God, through the word, can provide the ultimate comfort we need in the midst of our adversity. Look at the second part of verse 77. For your law is my delight. Even in the midst of hardship, the psalmist yearning for the word of God it still preoccupies his soul, for he delights in the law of God. And the word delight, it means joy, bliss, pleasure, desire. The Word of God provides him extreme enjoyment. Can you say that about the Word of God? Your law is my delight. You see, trials may take away a lot of things from the believer, right? Can take away our health, can take away our wealth, can take away our family. But one thing trials ought never to do to the believer is to take away the believer's delight in the Word of God. If God is near, we have comfort and protection. We are safe in His arms. Fifth, pray for your enemies. He says in verse 78, May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie. Their dealings with me is unfounded. It's all a lie. 
They smear me with a false testimony. And our Lord Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So the psalmist doesn't take matters into his own hands. God will avenge. And Jesus said this in Luke 18, 7, concerning the believer, will not God bring his justice for the elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? The answer being, no, he will not. He will attend to them. And that's where the psalmist rests. He prays that the enemy may be put to shame so that he can serve God freely. And perhaps that the enemy may even be redeemed and know this loving kindness of God. So he says in verse 78, the second part, but I shall meditate on your precepts. He says the same thing in verse 134 of our chapter. Redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep your precepts. So this is not a vindictive spirit, but it's a desire to serve the Lord in much freedom. So where do you go in the hour of trial? Where, where do you go when the heat gets hotter and hotter? The psalmist says, I meditate on his precepts. And precepts, that speaks of divinely ordered step-by-step instructions, principles and procedures to follow, to lead a godly life. But what is the normal disposition of our souls when we're going through trials? We hurry, we panic, we tire ourselves with sorrow and tears. And the psalmist says, I sit and meditate on your precepts. To conclude this point, Jesus, of course, commands us to pray for our enemies, as we've said. So how much more our spouse when we don't get along with him or her? How much more our children when they are wayward? How much more the colleagues at work who are giving us a hard time? Pray for your enemies. So surely we can pray for our loved ones. We can pray for those we made vows with. The sixth thing here, pray for restored fellowship. Pray for restored fellowship, verse 79. May those who fear you tend to me, even those who know your testimonies. He already prayed earlier, right, in verse 74. May those who fear you see me and be glad. Now notice the description of believers here. Those who fear Yahweh. And know his testimonies. And the emphasis of the word testimonies, it concerns Yahweh's warnings and his admonitions. Believers are those who fear Yahweh based on what they know. Right? And believers are those who heed to Yahweh's warnings and admonitions. The two cannot be separated. One commentator says this, knowledge without fear would be self-confidence. Fear without knowledge would be bondage. The believer possesses both instruction and devotion. In verses 76 and 77, he begged for God to tend to him in loving kindness. But now he begs for God's people also to tend to him. Now the second part, there's a a textual variant issue there, which you could either see that as a parallel to the first clause, even those who know your testimonies, which is how it is for us in, in the NASB, or it could be a purpose clause, that they may know your testimonies by turning to me. So even in my trials, I lead such a life that when believers see me and they tend to me, they learn your testimonies. 
whichever way you take it, it is clear that his deepest desire is to be restored to fellowship with the believers. He wants nothing in the way of this fellowship. How about, how about us? How about you? Do you seek to face trials alone, alienated from the fellowship of believers? Or do you seek the company of the saints to be your help and guide in the midst of your troubles? May we treasure the company of the saints, especially when we are walking through difficult times. You have no idea how much ministry you can have by being a witness in how you are going through your own trials. It does the body of believers a lot of good. And finally, pray for a sound heart. Pray for a sound heart. Verse 80. May my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. Blameless. That refers to that which is complete, without fault, free of blemish. It carries the idea of being above reproach. And blamelessness, of course, is a depiction of Yahweh's standard for his chosen people and is the only means to true happiness. That's how he began this chapter. Verse 1 of Psalm 119. How blessed are those whose way is blameless. And remember in verse 73, he prayed for a sound understanding. So now he moves on further and deeper and prays for a transformed and a sound heart based on his understanding of God's statutes. And statutes speak of the binding force of Yahweh's eternally established revelation. This is permanent requirements, possibly etched and fixed in stone. Statutes are Yahweh's lasting expectations concerning man. So he's saying, I want to be blameless according to your fixed expectations of how man ought to live. It's one thing to be above reproach, right, according to man's standards. But it's quite another according to God's own revelation. So may we learn to pray as the psalmist does here. And even David, he prays in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, verse 23, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hateful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The reason the psalmist gives here for praying this way, he says, so that I will not be ashamed. And he uses the strongest possible prohibition in the Hebrew, denoting a permanent negation. So he's saying this, so that I will never become ashamed. And that is true. There is no cause for shame in the path of righteousness. Nothing. Zero. Right? As we've seen in the first two verses of this chapter, he says that there's blessedness, there's joy for those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their hearts. Even in the heat of affliction, the psalmist's priority number one remains obedience. So may our afflictions not draw us away from God's path of sanctification, without which, as the scripture says, no man shall see the Lord. So how do you pray when in the lion's den? How do you pray when the oceans rise and thunders roar? How do you pray when darkness veils your step? As a creature made by God, and a saint redeemed by him, 
You pray for a sound understanding. You pray to be a blessing. You pray to be submissive. You pray for comfort and protection. You pray for your enemies. You pray for restored fellowship. And you pray for a sound heart. May the Lord help us. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us, even in the midst of our afflictions. Perhaps, indeed, all of us can testify just this past year of the various trials that we faced, times of great sorrow, times of adversity, and times, even, Lord, where our own sin overwhelms us. Even as the psalmist prays in this very chapter, let, the, let no sin have dominion over me. And sometimes it feels that sin is having that grasp on us. And the external pressures, emotional trials, physical trials, relational trials, Whatever kind, Lord, we pray that you'll sustain us in this coming year. Help us to fix our minds on your word, to meditate on your precepts, and to be those who, who love you and see your sovereign hand, even in the midst of our deepest hour. Help us to look at our Lord Jesus and to follow his example and to love him and to seek to make it ambition to be pleasing to him even when the going gets tough. It is in his name we pray. Amen.